I remember as a young child reading the account of Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and being quite perplexed at his fate. If you turn initially to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we'll begin there, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And in this account, which goes from verse 1 to verse 7, we read of what happens when David attempted to move the Ark of the Covenant about 10 miles into Jerusalem, and we find this very, very shocking account of Uzzah's fate. The writer records these words, Second Samuel 6 verse 1, now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. I remember when I read that as a young child thinking, what did Uzzah do? In fact, it seems by all intents and purposes that Uzzah's desire was good. The ark was bouncing in the cart. He didn't want it to fall onto the ground, and so he steadies it there. Why was that irreverence? And why would God then strike him down dead right there beside the ark? It was only later that I realized that the whole problem with the with Uzzah and David even and the people of Israel in general was that they had approached the ark with irreverence. God had made it abundantly clear in the law that no man was to touch the ark of the covenant. Special rings were molded to the side and poles were to be inserted and left there so that the ark would only be carried by men as they hoisted the poles up on their shoulders with no man touching the ark. And those who could carry those poles were a limited few, those who were the sons of Kohath, and only those. And anyone else who would dare to partake of that responsibility would be dishonoring God by disobeying his word. The whole problem here was that Uzzah had approached the ark with irreverence. It was not to be on a wagon in the first place, and his hand was never to touch that ark. His hand was far more unclean than the ground upon which it could fall. This picture shows, as many other accounts that we read of in the Old Testament and New Testament, show how easy it is for us to approach God irreverently, for us to approach God flippantly with a speedy approach or with a lackadaisical attitude where we think that worship is more about our experience and our expression than anything else. Certainly when you look at what goes for worship today in many places around the world, we see that 
flippancy, that superficiality, that man-centeredness on full display. R.C. Sproul has described the modern worship movement well when he writes this. He says, the modern movement of worship is designed to break down barriers between man and God, to remove the veil, as it were, from the fearsome holiness of God, which might cause us to tremble. It is designed to make us feel comfortable. And that is the whole problem of much of worship today, is that we look upon worship as the place for us to feel at home, the place for us to feel comfortable, to kind of roll up the sleeves, to put our feet up, to have a good time. That's how worship is conceived. And yet, as we will see this, this evening, as we look at Ecclesiastes 5, that is far from the portrayal of worship that God gives. Turn to, uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and our focus this evening will be on verses 1 to 7, a very important text within Ecclesiastes, probably the most condensed, richest theological portion of the book. It is a text which gives us very clear instructions on worship. And although Solomon writes these under the Old Covenant, under the strictures of the Mosaic Law, we see within these words, his instructions, principles that transcend the Old Covenant and apply to worshipers everywhere. As we will see, as Solomon grounds his instruction in the character of God, we see that that character of God is unchanging, it is immutable. And so the same worship, the same reverence, the same fear that it was due him in Solomon's day is very much due him today as well. As we look at this text, we can break it into two parts. The first, which we will give most of our time to, is found in verses 1 and 3, and it deals with approaching God in worship. What we'll find here are general instructions that exhort us to approach God in worship the right way. General instructions on approaching God in worship. And then in verses 4 to 7, we will see a particular aspect of that worship described by Solomon in terms of approaching God in word. Approaching God in worship, verses 1 to 3, and approaching God in word in verses 4 to 7. Let's look at the first of those, approaching God in worship, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 to 3. Solomon writes this, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulse or thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. These first three verses give us four instructions from Solomon. We see four imperatives. The first one is guard your steps. The second one is draw near to listen. The third is do not be hasty. And the fourth is let your words be few. We're going to look at each of these four exhortations and we'll trace the progression as Solomon moves from the feet to the ear, to the heart or mind, and then to the tongue, the order of progression in worship. And the first of these exhortations is found in the beginning of verse 1. The first is this, watch your step. Watch your step. Solomon writes, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Here the focus is on feet. It's on your steps. And Solomon gives the first warning here related to worship as it relates 
to the approach, not even to what you do in the context of worship itself, but to the very approach to worship as you approach the presence of God. He says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Now, in Solomon's time, this term, house of God, was used to refer to the temple. You can look at 1 Chronicles 22, verse 2, or 2 Chronicles 3, verse 3, where the very terminology is used to describe the temple which Solomon built. But it was also used before that. It was used to refer to the tabernacle, and it was even used to refer to that place where Jacob had his vision of the ladder ascending into heaven. And he called it Bethel, the house of God. In essence, that terminology really refers to any place where God manifested his glory in a unique way. And a place where God was uniquely called upon in worship. That's the house of God. And as Solomon describes steps here, these are not actual physical steps that that he is prescribing. He's talking about spiritual ones. And in one sense, you could look at these steps really as a way of life. This is David's concern, for example, in Psalm 15. And undoubtedly, Solomon was familiar with David's own Poetry on this in Psalm 15, where David himself asks the all-important question, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. There David is talking about spiritual steps, so to speak, that extend far out before one ever comes to the temple itself. Probably Solomon's concern here is a little bit more closer to the actual experience or the actual act of worship. He is, he's focused on the preparation that is to take place before you call upon the name of Yahweh. He's speaking of that special season where unique preparation is required, preparation that acknowledges the holiness of God. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, the unthinking Uh, The unthinking many imagine it to be a very easy matter to approach the Most High. And when professedly engaged in his worship, they have no questionings of heart as to their fitness for it. But truly humbled souls often shrink under a sense of utter unworthiness. Spurgeon defines it well. The the masses, the unthinking many, believe it's an easy thing to approach God in worship. Seldom even considering their unworthiness for it. But the humble, the ones who are prepared, the ones who follow Solomon's counsel, they don't approach it easily. In fact, they are burdened by their unworthiness and they approach it with a great sense of humility. That's what Solomon is after. Watch your step. Watch your step. Secondly, the second exhortation Solomon gives is to listen up. Listen up. He says this in the second half of verse 1. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Here the focus now has progressed from the feet to the ears. And drawing near to listen has this idea that as one comes near the temple, the place where God's glory is particularly manifested, the person would begin to hear. And and, and the whole assumption here 
when Solomon says, and draw near to listen, is that someone else is speaking. In other words, your voice isn't what matters. In, in, the, in the act of worship, it is not your sounds that matter. It is not your voice that matters. Instead, what matters is that you hear another's voice. And in the context of this text, it is a reference to the proclamation of God's word. You see, the Levites, the priests, were given the responsibility at the temple to teach the word of God, the statutes, the commandments, the laws, the works described in the word to the people of Israel. And they would go to that temple and that temple would be the place where the word of God would be uniquely proclaimed. And Solomon says, when you draw near, you must draw near to listen to another's voice and not to express your own. To worship in that way when you come, opening your ears and silencing your mouth, you worship in that way because you recognize the greatness of God means that he deserves to be heard first. Worship is not the context for you to practice self-expression. It's not the place for you to put your skills and oratory on display. It is the place where God must be heard. Theologians will talk about this when they talk about God being the foundation of all things. They will call God, they will, they will say that God is what's called in Latin the principium ascendi, the foundation for existing. Because God is ase, he is, he is self-sufficient and life comes from him, he is the foundation for existing. God is also the principium cognoscendi, which means that he is the foundation for knowing, that the only way we can know anything is because he knows all things. But God is also the principium lacandi, which means he is the foundation of speaking. We cannot truly speak We cannot put forth true words unless we receive them from God himself. And that's what Solomon is getting at. When you draw near to worship, you come first to listen and to learn. Charles Hodge, in his work on, in his systematic theology, has described it this way. He says this, quote, It is obvious that we can have no rational feelings of gratitude, love, adoration, and fear toward God, except in view of the truths revealed concerning him and his word. We can have no love or devotion to Christ, except so far as the manifestation of his character and work is accepted by us as true. We can have no faith except as founded in some revealed promise of God. No resignation or submission except in view of the wisdom and love of God and of his universal providence as revealed in the scriptures. No joyful anticipation of future blessedness which is not found on what the gospel makes known of a future state of existence. And we know from our own lives And we know from looking at the world around us that there is so much superficiality in worship because we don't listen. And the poverty of our own souls is expressed in that approach that says, I'm going to worship to say something to God. Solomon says, no, you go to worship to listen. At the heart of this is, of course, a receptivity and a teachability. If you come to worship and you're not hungry to learn, if you come to worship and and you're not thinking, I've got something I need from the word today, I, I need to hear. If you're coming instead to say something, you are not coming to worship. To worship means to be receptive, to be taught It means that there is a a recognition that I must learn something, I must know something from God before I can ever express it back to him in truth. 
What is implied here is a submissiveness of the mind and the will that I come and when I hear the word preached, my mind is in a submissive state. Yes, I examine the scriptures to see whether these things are so, but as the word is taught, as it is preached, my mind is submissive to that word and I am laboring ever so hard to see my mind transformed by what I hear. This is repeated in so many places throughout Scripture that we must come first to listen before we speak. Proverbs 28 verse 9, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And Solomon in this text in Ecclesiastes 5 contrasts the required attitude with the attitude of the fools. Notice what they do. Notice back at the end of verse 1. They come in, they rush in to offer their sacrifices. They don't come to learn, they don't come to, to, to receive. Instead, they come just to act. They come to act it all out, to do all the stuff that they want to do. And Solomon says they are so foolish that they don't even know that what they are doing is evil. And that's not an excuse. This is culpable ignorance. They assert themselves to such an extent impervious to the teachings of God that they have no idea. And it makes us wonder when we look across this world at all the so-called churches and people going in to do all the things that they do, the lighting of candles, the crossing of themselves, the kissing of icons, all those kinds of things. And there is an irreceptibleness, a refusal, an unteachableness to the word of God and a lack of utter contriteness and humility before that word. There's an interesting text on this very topic from the pen of David in Psalm 40 verse 6 where Solomon or where David Solomon's father makes this statement in verse 6 and it's a fascinating text that deals specifically with this issue of listening. Here David says, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. And then he has this statement right in the middle. He says, my ears you have opened. And then he says it again, what he said at the beginning of the verse. He says, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Well, when you look at the original of that middle portion of the verse, my ears you have opened. Literally it reads, ears you have dug for me. What a fascinating statement. What is David saying? He's emphasizing the point that in true worship, and this is true in Old Testament times as it is in the New Testament, that God is not after all these kinds of activities. Rather, he is after the open ear, the receptivity to his word. And you know what? Even he has to dig the way in. Ears. You have dug for me. We are so thick-headed, the space between the outside of our skull and our brain is made up of impenetrable granite so that God has to chisel through. And only his sovereign work can do that. One commentator has summed it up this way, summarizing or paraphrasing Psalm 40, verse 6, God is speaking and must be listened to, but what good is a speaking God without listening ears? So God gets a pick and a shovel and digs through the cranial granite, opening a passage that will give access to the interior depths, into the mind and heart. The result is a restoration of scripture, eyes turn into ears. Here's the importance of this point from Solomon and Ecclesiastes. God-honoring worship is always defined by humble, contrite recognition of need. We don't worship because God needs us. We come to worship because we need. We are desperate. And we are without hope without him. 
We find this even in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house? Notice that term house again. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being. And then what does Yahweh say at the end of that text in Isaiah 66 verse 2? He says these words. He says, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The second lesson is that we must come to worship in order to listen. Third, third, Solomon says, think before you speak. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and notice the first part of verse 2. Solomon says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are in earth. The focus here now has, has, has proceeded from the feet to the ears and now it's internal. Now it's the heart or the mind. And, and even after listening, here's the problem. Even after listening to the word of God, we are so impetuous. We can hardly keep back the words. We have our agenda. We want to state our opinion. And so we'll even bear to listen, but quickly respond. And Solomon exhorts us through these words to think before you speak. That the agenda isn't just yours. It's not yours just to answer back to God some quick opinion or perspective. He says, why are you so impetuous to bring up a matter in the presence of God? Take time to think. Take time to think. Impetuousness, rashness has always been a vice as described by scripture, we could look at a lot of Proverbs on this. Proverbs, Proverbs fifteen twenty eight. The heart of the righteous ponders. He ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. You could see that in Proverbs 18, verse 2. In Proverbs 18, verse 13. In Proverbs 21, verse 23. In Proverbs 29, verse 20. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Now, coming back to Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon's concern here is about that kind of impetuous worship, a response to God's word that is trite, a response that is superficial, careless. Why? Solomon says, why? Because God is in heaven And you are on the earth. Now some commentators say, well, this is an example of Solomon's view that God is some distant despot. That he's a far off Lord somewhere out there who can't even hear you. Well, such an interpretation really doesn't make sense in this context. And certainly doesn't take into account the specific instruction that Solomon is giving even to listen Solomon instead is emphasizing the reality of God's transcendence. He is, that is, God is not subject to creation. God doesn't need to listen to you. You're not contributing anything to his knowledge by bringing up a matter. He's not dependent on you. He's not dependent on anything in creation. He's in no way like creation. God is high and lifted up. He is in heaven. You are under the sun. And what Solomon is reminding us here is that a a vision of God's transcendence, a careful consideration of that truth, will impact how we think and express our worship. It will guard against 
superficial and earthly thinking. It's so easy when we get into worship just to liken everything to ourselves, our own experiences, our own intuition. We liken God to what we felt like yesterday or what have you. All those kinds of vain and unworthy things are filling our minds. And Solomon says, stop and think of who God really is. And only once you have thought more on that, are you ready to speak? Isaiah 55, verse 8 to 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, this is God speaking, nor are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And letting that verse sink in as we approach worship, as we begin to engage in worship, is so very important to protect us from unworthy thoughts of God. In fact, Jesus himself taught his disciples this very way. The very start of the prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples begins with this emphasis on transcendence. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's where we start. That's where true worship begins. Fourth, Solomon gives us the exhortation to speak, but to speak less, not more. Notice the end of verse 2 and then all of verse 3. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Now the progression is finally to the mouth. Solomon does not say words are unimportant. No, words are very important. We do speak. Speech is essential to worship as we confess who God is. But we must learn to put a cap on what we say. And to explain this point, Solomon creates an interesting parallel here. And it's a little bit of a challenging text to interpret. He says this in verse 3. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Now, first of all, it's important to understand that the term for dream here, he's not talking about revelatory dreams. He's not speaking of of receiving some kind of special revelation through the dream because the term dream here is likened to the voice of a fool. These are not standards. These are not authorities. He parallels the dream with the voice of a fool. He parallels much effort and many words. And all of those characteristics are negative. And he's using those to buttress the the argument that when we worship, we should actually speak carefully and err on the side of less speech than more. I like how Derek Kidner describes this kind of a dream. This kind of a dream is a daydream that results or that reduces worship to what he calls verbal doodling. I think all of us know what this is like when we just let our minds wander. It's not under the control of the word. We just let them run riot. And out comes this kind of verbal diarrhea. It's just this this mess of words. And Solomon says, stop it. Stop with that. Now, what does he mean by much effort? And there's a a whole long debate over what much effort means. Some suggest that this kind of daydreaming comes from mental fatigue. Others say that it comes because of anxieties. Others say that the difficulty is there when there is no dreaming and imagination controlled by the word. It is so difficult to explain because it's so false. Well, the big point is this. This we know for sure from this text, that God-honoring worship requires careful, measured words. Careful and measured. Jesus said again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 7 to 8, 
just before he teaches them how to pray, Jesus says, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, it's not going to be through the abundance of words that you'll manipulate God to do what you want him to do. It's not going to work. By that approach, you only dishonor him. So Solomon says, cease. Use words carefully and use them with careful thought, measured, clear, direct, truthful. There's a second major section in this this paragraph here, this portion of Ecclesiastes 5, and it goes from verses 4 to 7. We won't spend so much time here because the general thought is, is, is clear. The second section, the second set of instructions has to do with approaching God in word, verses 4 to 7. Here Solomon writes this, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, hebel. Rather, fear God. Three fundamental exhortations in this portion. He begins by saying, keep your promises, verses 4 to 5. Now, when he speaks of a vow, he's speaking specifically here of promises that are made to God. Promises that some way invoke God, either directed to him, or they are promises, you could say, that somehow incorporate him into the vow. And what Solomon does here is refer back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 to 23, which gives the exact essence of what he speaks here. He draws in from the words of Moses. We won't read that now, but you can go back to that text and see how closely it mirrors Solomon's own instruction in Ecclesiastes 5. But this Warning about careless vows is repeated elsewhere. Proverbs 20 verse 25, for example, says this. It is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and after the vows, then to make inquiry. In other words, it is a trap for someone to glibly, quickly, rashly make some kind of declaration and promise related to God and then after the declaration, the vow, the oath has been made, think, huh, I guess I should look into that a little more. That's exactly what Solomon is warning against. Now, it's not that vows are inherently sinful. We could look at Acts chapter 18, verse 18, for example, where Paul fulfills a vow that he had made while he was in Corinth and, and completes it with the cutting of his hair. So vows aren't inherently wrong. The point is that vows should be made rarely, if ever. Here's the, here's the main takeaway. Solomon emphasizes that words always matter, men, especially words directed toward God. They matter. Because God is a God of the word, in words, his words matter, so our words must matter as well. Promises should not be made rashly. It's better not to make promises than to break promises. And that faithfulness to one's word is crucial. And finally, God is not going to be manipulated by careless promises that you have no intention of fulfilling or that you make without careful thought. And it all comes down to this, that God is a God of vows. God is a God of promises, of covenants. And he is immutably, unchangeably committed to fulfill all of those promises that every yes is a yes and amen. And he will not let one word fall to the ground. And because that is who God is, 
We as his children must take a very careful approach to any kind of promises and oaths and vows that we make and not break them because our God does not break his. And every time you break a vow, you demean the character of our faithful God. And that's a vow in any area. Man, think about the vow that you made if you're married before God when you took your wife. That's a vow. And God holds you to that. And the same kind of threat and warning that Solomon gives here applies to those very vows. You made a promise and you promised a lot. You promised everything. And you can't go back to those vows and say, well, it was a mistake. I didn't realize this. Or I didn't do enough investigation. There's no part for that. We're going to see that. Notice this second instruction in this portion of teaching in Ecclesiastes 5. Solomon says, speak the truth. It's again related to vows. He goes on to say this, do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? The messenger of God that Solomon refers to here probably refers to an official at the temple who would hear the vow and then be sent later on to collect on it. It was something that the people of Israel did. They would make their vows in front of official delegates and then those messengers would come and make sure that the vow was fulfilled. But Solomon says it's, a, it's an atrocity that you would say to the messenger, oops, I made a mistake. And in fact, this word for mistake includes inadvertent errors. It's not even an intentional error. It's an inadvertent error. And Solomon says, listen, if you make an inadvertent error, you're still culpable. You didn't do your research. You made it glibly, too quickly, rashly. And again, I come back to that vow that you make as a married man. You cannot come back to it and then say, well, I can break it. I know I promised God, but I can break it because I didn't realize this, or I didn't realize that, or she burns the toast, or she doesn't look the way she did on the wedding day anymore, or, and you fill in the blank. No, the inadvertent error is on your part. You fulfill the vow. Vows should be intentional, writes William Barrick, not unintentional. Claiming an error in such a situation is tantamount to admitting that the promise was made in haste. For an example of then how the Lord destroys the work of one's hand, you can go to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They made a vow and they lied to the Holy Spirit and the Lord strikes them both dead. That's how he treats vows. Thirdly, revere the Lord. As he draws this section to a close, he says in verse 7, for many, in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Solomon returns here to the topic he raised in in verse 3 at the end of that particular section where he talks about dreams and many words and he says the same thing here the many dreams and the many words they are emptiness hebel the word that we defined as a vapor fleetingness meaninglessness they, they it's here and it's gone tomorrow it's gone the next moment And what he's emphasizing here is that partially intended promises, ambiguous declarations, daydreaming verbal babble, half-hearted recitals, all of these things demean the character of God. 
And there's only one acceptable alternative to all of this. He says, rather, fear God. Fearing God, as we've already noted in this book, is that scarlet thread that holds it all together. Sometimes the theme is subtle. At other times, it's on vivid display. We find it in 3 verse 14. We find it here in 7 verse 18, in chapter 8 verses 12 to 13. And then, of course, at the conclusion in chapter 12 verses 13 and 14. And this emphasis on the fear of God show that this is a theologically positive book. And this fear that Solomon refers to is not some kind of fear related only to the old covenant Because we read of in Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah 32, 39, that in the new covenant promised there in Jeremiah 32, we read that God will give one heart and one way. Why? So that the regenerated one would fear him always. This is not a a limited experience. This is to be the mark of God's people all the time. This fear is is equivalent to what we could call the New Testament life of faith, a, a life of submission and humility, of reverence toward God. It is not a servile kind of fear that marks the kind of fear a slave would have for his master, but rather it is a filial fear, the kind of fear that a good son would have to his good father. And those of you who have grown up in wonderful homes know exactly what this means. You fear your dads, not because you want to run away. You want to be like them. And that's the kind of fear that's here, the kind of fear that doesn't drive us away, the kind of fear instead that attracts us, that wants us to leave ourselves behind and make much of the one that does the attracting. Charles Bridges defines this fear And probably the best words when he says this, but what is the fear of the Lord? It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. That takes us all the way back to the first part of this text, the kind of humility that marks the true worshiper as he comes to hear God's law. As we close, let me leave you with four exhortations here. First, men, what impacts the authenticity of your worship more than anything else is to study the character of God. He is, after all, the object of worship. You're not going to become a better worshiper by becoming a better musician or a better orator you will become a better worshiper by understanding the revelation that God has made about himself. Study his perfections. Secondly, recognize the importance of preparation. We need to cultivate in our lives a kind of hesitancy that says I must first prepare myself spiritually before I enter the presence of God it's not that I just run in and, and, and in the same way that I would just run into my home. No, instead, there is a, a reverential fear that says, as I walk up, as I approach this presence of God, I will prepare my heart. I will humble myself and enter with my face down to the ground. Third, approach to listen and to learn. Again, God doesn't need your words. He doesn't need your adoration. He is self-sufficient. Instead, worship is a, a privilege he affords to his children, and we get the benefit. How? We come to receive from him his word, his glory. So approach to learn and to listen. Fourth, speak, pray, and sing words intentionally. We sang some hymns to start off our evening, as we did. 
As you followed along, you perhaps were singing, but was your mind there? When you come on a Sunday morning and you're in this worship center and you hear the different hymns, is your mind engaged in the content of the words or are you thinking about the football game that starts at one o'clock? That's convicting, isn't it? It is one of the most difficult spiritual disciplines to intentionally think through songs as we sing them together with an auditorium. Or as Pastor John is praying, the pastoral prayer, are you listening and uttering in your soul every word as, as you hear him pray or others pray? Are you listening intentionally? And fifth, honor your commitments that you make to God. Honor your commitments Your word matters because he is a God of his word. And of course, in all of these things, we are quickly brought to a realization that we fall far short. And at the end, it is only appropriate to thank God that he is a God of grace and mercy. And he is so patient with us. And as he blots out our sins and transgressions related to all the unworthy worship we offer, we can be thankful that because of what he has done in Jesus Christ, we still have access to his throne to go yet again. Let's thank him for that and ask that he would make us into the kind of worshipers that would reflect his worthiness. Father, We are humbled by these words. We are convicted and we feel the weight of them on our souls. We beseech you for forgiveness for all the unworthy songs that we have sung, for the unworthy ways that we have sung the right ones, for all the times we've listened to prayers with one ear while thinking of something completely different. Father, we pray for your forgiveness. We're thankful that you have promised it to us in Christ Jesus. And we're thankful that because of what he has done, the throne room remains open to us. And even from us imperfect creatures, fallen as we are. Even in our imperfect words, even in ways that are unworthy of you, you still love to hear our worship. We're thankful for that. And we look forward to the day when finally all these distractions And all this fallenness, this flesh will be done away with and we will be able to worship you in truth and purity. We long for that. We pray for it. We know it will come in Jesus' name. Amen.